This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Today's reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. It's found on page 811 of your Pew Bibles. Again, Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, and neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Good morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us, that you have made yourself known to us. God, this morning as we hear from your word, I ask for a spirit of revelation to open our eyes. Would you illuminate and instruct us by your spirit, we ask. God, would you cause us to experience the grace of your spirit? God, that our hearts would be unified to fear your name. God, would you give our hearts a singular focus in this world? Your glory, your kingdom, your righteousness, God, would you liberate us this morning from a divided heart? God, would you liberate us this morning from the power of anxiety and fear in our lives? God, would you liberate us this morning from being caught between two opinions? Spirit of God, would you come and move among us and produce in us that which we cannot produce ourselves, which is full allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ in every single place of our lives. God, and in a a moment of time where everyone is looking for internal peace and internal uh, tranquility and comfort and looking for it in all the wrong places, Lord God, I ask that you would Bring us up under your kingdom 
and let peace abound. Let the Prince of Peace reign over us. God, come and instruct us. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're marching our way through the Sermon on the Mount. If you haven't been with us, we're, we're a couple months in and we're finding ourselves coming to the end of a section where Jesus has been outlining the ways that we are to actively pursue partnering with his grace in transformation. And so we find ourselves at the end of this uh, section and Jesus anticipates what is going to be a logical and pervasive question that's going to begin to arise in the human soul. it's, It's going to sound something like this. If I pursue wholehearted obedience to Jesus in all these ways, meaning if I resist the temptations that he has told me to resist, if I pursue the means of grace that he's put before me, if I submit all of my life to him solely as Lord and master over everything, if I do this, will he sustain me? Will he provide for me? Will he take care of me? Will he make good on his word? The primary thrust of this section, you heard it again and again, is Jesus' command to not be anxious. Six times in these verses, Jesus highlights the reality of anxiety. Now, in the immediate context, we find ourselves, Jesus has just told us to uh, not be anxious because he's told us we can't serve God and money. So in the immediate context, this is about our money. Kind of what we talked about last week. Submitting all of our lives up under the lordship of Jesus and particularly as it relates to our pocketbooks. But in the broader context of the Sermon on the Mount, There is something to be said about what Jesus is getting at here as the logical outworking of where we are. Look with me at letter E. The result of pursuing the values and the lifestyle of God's kingdom brings us to the place where we wonder if we'll be provided for. If we truly lay down our rights. Meaning, remember, Jesus has said things like, Hey, if somebody insults you by slapping you across the cheek, give them your other cheek. If someone besmirches your name and sets themselves up as an adversary, bless them and pray for them and do good for them. Don't try to vindicate yourself against them. He's come along and said things like, give your money away to the poor. He's said things like, forgive And we ask the question, if I do these things, right? If I abandon my reputation, right? When someone insults me and all I want to do is rise up and vindicate myself in in the place of that. If I hand that over to him, will he care for me? If I give my money away, will he sustain me? If I bless my enemies, will justice ever happen? All of these questions Jesus knows are going to come in our hearts. If I submit myself to you fully and wholly, 
Will you be good? Will you make good on your promises? Our hearts will be tempted in these places to be caught up with anxious worry about whether God will come through on his word or not, right? In other words, we're asking the question, God, are you who you say you are? Will you be good? Will you follow through on your word? And now here's, here's the hard place where we got to do a little work to put this together. This implies that there is going to be an in-between moment, I think, between us pursuing the things that God has called us into, being poor in spirit, mourning, hungering and thirsting, being meek, those kind of realities where we are going to experience what seems like him not coming through. There's going to be a delay. There's going to be a waiting period. There's going to be a moment like the author of Hebrews talks about where people that look for promises walk through in faith to God, believing that he'll make good on his word, and we might even die without seeing it all. Is God good to show up and do what he said? Will he provide? Jesus knows our hearts are going to ask that question, and so he anticipates it and speaks to us these beautiful words, inviting us into a posture of confident trust in him that is opposite of anxiety. Jesus understands that anxiety or worry or fear hinders us from walking in the fullness of his life and the experience of his kingdom. Anxiety is a detriment to our growth in the values of the kingdom. And we see from this passage, I'm going to say this, this is going to hit hard in our hearts, I think, heavy. Anxiety is evidence of a divided heart. Jesus has just before said, you cannot serve two things. You cannot serve God and money. He said you can't have a whole eye that looks at light and is filled up with light and look at darkness. You can't lay up treasures in heaven and lay up treasures on earth. Then he immediately says, so don't be anxious. Anxiety here we see is evidence of something. It's evidence of our propensities to live a divided life. It's evidence of a divided heart. So we need to understand anxiety. Look at Roman numeral two. To understand the nature of Jesus' exhortation here and his invitation to us, we have to seek to understand exactly what does he mean by being anxious. It's essential for us to know that Jesus is not in any way promising in this passage, passage that his disciples will never experience hardship in this world. Okay, that's, just get that out of your mind. If you hear this and think, man, if I just trust hard enough or I just believe enough, I'm never going to experience any kind of dif- disappointment or difficulty or hardship or waiting, go ahead and just push that out of your mind. Jesus all over the place promises his followers that they will have hardship in this world, that they will have trouble in this world, that there will be difficulty and waiting and patient endurance that's required. He all over the place promises that to us. So Jesus is not telling us that things are just going to be peachy keen and really easy all the time. Jesus is instructing his disciples, let her see, 
how to live in the world. Although we will experience times of hardship and trouble, we can walk in our lives with a confident trust in him and in his promises. So to walk with an anxious heart is to possess unrenewed and fleshly narratives of how we see the world or how we see our circumstances in a particular way. This leads ultimately to our hearts being fretful about things on the horizon of our lives that we have absolutely no control over. Now, let me, let me just define this for you. Anxiety, worry, fear in this context is a, is a felt reality, okay? And our emotions are often the product of two things. How we see things or what we believe to be true and the, the inputs that we get into us by our circumstances and our senses. Let me make sense of what I mean by that. If you walk into a room that's dark and you see a stick on the ground, right? You're seeing something on the, on the ground. If you believe that stick is a snake, what are you going to feel? Afraid, right? So what you believe to be true, meeting the circumstance that you are in, produces this experience in you, right? Anxiety in a similar manner, as Jesus is outlining it here, it has to do with how we see or what we believe to be true as we walk through our lives, right? So I'm walking through my life, I'm obeying Jesus, I'm experiencing some hardship. What do I believe to be true? That is going to shape my experience of walking through that in my heart and in my soul. Letter E, Jesus is also not saying here that we should never think or plan about the future in any way. I just wanna be clear about that. Biblical wisdom outlines many specific ways that we're to plan with wisdom for our future. However, Jesus is highlighting the propensity that every one of us has to be driven by fearful, toilsome, fretful worry as it relates to our lives in the future. So Jesus isn't saying, hey, don't ever think about what's coming down the road and don't plan or prepare for it in any way. He's getting at the internal reality of how we walk into that. Are we walking into that with confident trust and obedience or are we walking into it with a fretful, anxious, toilsome inner reality that is anxious and worried. So Jesus declares here that anxiety is rooted in a spirit of unbelief. In this section, it's an outworking of a, of a divided heart, one that's not singularly or wholly focused on the kingdom of heaven and the values of Jesus. Turn with me to the top of page two. You can see Paul's statement, similar statement here in Philippians four. Jump to letter H. I want this to maybe help us make sense of how I'm getting at this idea of being divided as what Jesus is saying. Jesus uses this same word in Luke chapter 10 in the account when Mary and Martha are, Jesus is at their house and Mary's sitting at his feet listening to his words and Martha's running around busy and distracted with serving. And Jesus highlights this to Martha. Look at verse 38 here. 
Martha was distracted, okay? So we get here the overall interpretation of what Martha is, how she's engaging this moment, right? She's divided, she's distracted. She has uh, lots of like irons in the fire, so to speak. And she went up to the Lord and she goes, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to get off her rump and come and help me. But the Lord answered her and he says, Martha, Martha, the problem here, here's really important. The problem that of Martha in this moment isn't just that she's serving. He's getting at the heart reality. He's saying, you're, you're divided. You're distracted. You're, you're, you're concerned about too many things. You're anxious and troubled. The anxious there is the same thing that Jesus is getting at here. He's saying one thing is necessary. There's, there's one focus that should consume your life. And Mary has chosen the good portion and it will not be taken away from her. So we see from this passage that to be anxious or fretful or worrisome is an indicator of places where we're divided, distracted, or as Jesus has just said, we don't have a singular or whole eye, right? We have we're, we're, we're divided in what we long for, what we want, how we're pursuing things. We, we have one foot over here and one foot over here. And Jesus is saying, you cannot do that. You can't live that way. And if you live that way, the product will be anxiety. Inside, as you churn and are tossed around by that. So Jesus gives us the remedy. This is, this is what he's getting at here. And he begins to lay out for us the remedy for anxiety as we pursue obedience to him. In this section, he gives us five reasons not to be given over to anxiety, not to be given over in a fretful way in our life. These five realities should shape the way that we see the world in order that our experience or our feelings in the world would be transformed. So many of us, myself included, right? We experience these like toilsome or darkened emotions and we're unaware of how they're shaped by what we believe. I wanna invite you to see something. Every time Jesus in the word talks to us, about darkened, toilsome, troublesome emotions. He invites us to be reshaped by renewing what we believe. Okay, John 14, verse one. We preached the Upper Room Discourse earlier this year. Don't let your hearts be troubled. How? Believe in God and believe also in me. Jesus points his finger at the storm-tossed nature of our inner lives. And he goes, hey, let me invite you to know what to do when the inner churning of your soul gets thrown around by every wind and every circumstance. He invites us to partner with him in renewing what we believe to be true every single time. And this is really counter to what our current moment tells us. 
Right? Our current moment tells us that the truest thing about us is what we experience, what we feel, right? So what we have to do is remove everything that keeps us from feeling the truest parts of who we are. Jesus says, your feelings get tossed around to and fro. Renew your mind. Let your mind be shaped by truth, by what is stable and steady and secure. And here he does no different. Don't be anxious. Well, Jesus, how do I not be anxious? I'm like churning on the inside. Think different things. See things differently. I invite you to believe differently is what Jesus is going to do. Okay, he gives five reasons. Here we go, buckle up. Reason number one, our lives are more than our physical needs. That's the first reason Jesus gives you to not be anxious. The first truth that we're, we're, we're invited to hold on to is that we have greater needs than just our physical needs. We have things that we need that go beyond our body and our lives is how he says it here. He's quick to tell his hearers that life is more than food and your body is more than clothing. In other words, he's attempting to show you that there are spiritual needs that we have that we need to be concerned with that have eternal and lasting value. Look at Matthew 6, 25. This is the first thing he says. He asks it in the question form, and it's a rhetorical question. You are meant to go, oh, yeah, 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 There's, there is more than this. Is not life more than food? Hey, why are you anxious about what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear? Isn't your life about more than just food and clothing? Isn't your body for more than just what you're putting on it? Your body is created to give glory to the eternal God. Isn't your life more than just what you put inside of you? There is something that you need that surpasses food and clothing. Jesus invites us to see. Now, Jesus is not teaching that the physical realities of our lives don't matter, but that they're not the only things that matter or even the ultimate things that matter. We can experience physical hardship in this life and have an alive heart counter to that. You can have everything you need and be dead on the inside. You can have food and clothing in abundance and be completely dead on the inside. These things are both true, right? In 1 Peter 4, Peter says, those who walk through hardships and trials and sufferings experience the spirit of glory at the hand of God, 1 Peter 4, 14. Likewise, the Laodicean church in Revelation 3, Jesus shows up and says, hey, you've got everything you ever needed. You're fed, you're clothed, you're in comfortable houses, air conditioning's working great, heat's humming in the in the winter time, you got everything you need and your heart is dead. 
So Jesus is inviting us to see here in the moments where we get anxious and toilsome about what are we going to eat? Where's this coming from? What house am I going to live in? How, what job is on the horizon? Jesus goes, hey, in those moments, I want you to consider something. You have things that you need that transcend those realities. Now, he's not saying he doesn't care about those things or that they don't matter. They just don't matter ultimately, is what he's getting at. Look at Matthew 16 here, verse 26. Jesus, when he's inviting people to come and follow him, take up their cross and walk in his way, he says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul in the process? Again, Jesus is saying, you have things you need that surpass food and clothing. You could have all those things. You could gain the entire world and forfeit your soul. We have to ask the question, if that is the truth, am I in a good place? Jesus goes, consider this. Your body is for more than clothing. Your life is more than just food. So in the moments where you are tempted to be anxious, settle your heart by coming to the Lord and going, God, my life is more than these things. God, would you stabilize the eternal things in my soul in this moment? Would you give me what I need in life right now, life in you? We remember, number one, that our lives are more than just physical needs. Reason number two, Jesus moves on and he says, you are more valuable to God than the rest of creation. Jesus here uses a lesser to greater argument to establish us in the truth of his sovereign care over us. He goes on, he says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was never arrayed like one of these. So Jesus invites us here to look at the birds of the air. And there's a handful of older gentlemen in the room who are getting excited that they get to buy a new bird feeder or something for the back deck. This is Jesus's uh, promotion of, of bird watching. Yeah. Uh, Jesus invites us to look at the birds of the air and consider the flowers of the field. And in doing so, like I've said earlier, he's inviting you to see something different, to believe something different, right? Let the anxiety that comes up in your soul be a tip off to you that I am seeing the world in a particular way. And Jesus goes, come and see it differently. See it differently. Believe that your life is more than just about food and clothing. And go outside. Look at the birds of the air. Look at them. They, they aren't storing up stockpiles of food. They aren't building barns. They're not doing all these things. And God provides for them. Look at the lilies. They're not anxiously, troublingly 
uh, figuring out what's the coolest thing to put on their body this season. And guess what? Even Solomon in his heyday didn't look as good as they did. That's what he's getting at, right? So it's important for us. Let me just na- narrate a couple things. Number one, we, this is not Jesus telling us to be lazy, as if he's saying, like, don't work, right? He's saying, go out and look at the birds. The birds still get out of their nest and go hunt for food and look for food and find it, right? Like, they're not, he's not saying, hey, watch the birds. They just sit in their nest, open their beak, and like a hand appears from heaven with a worm in it. No, he's saying they get after it in the means that he has ordained. So he's not even saying, hey, don't be prudent about the future. There are plenty of animals that store up for the future that like, that are industrious. There are places, you know, in the Proverbs where it's like, look to the ant and how industrious they are and all that kind of stuff. So this isn't Jesus saying, just sit back, chill out, hang, hang out, you know, and, and God's going to provide everything. He's saying, go after what's in front of you. He's saying work. He's saying, put your hand to something, but as you do it, do it like the birds. They're not sitting there going, oh my goodness, am I going to find anything today? Oh my goodness, what about tomorrow? Oh my goodness, what if that bill hits three days from now and I can't pay it? What's going to happen to me then? Oh, surely I'm going to lose my rent. I'm going to lose this. I'm going to lose it. Like they don't think that way. Jesus is saying, look at them. They work. They go, they are busy, they do what's in front of them, and God provides for them. And let me tell you something, Jesus would say, your heavenly father cares way more about you than he cares about the birds. He cares way more about you than the wildflowers of the field that are here today and gone tomorrow. He cares way more about you. So why are you anxious? Why are you troubled? Why are you churning? Why are you unsettled in your soul as it relates to your life? You are more valuable to your father in heaven than the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. Reason number three, Jesus helps us to see something that we all know but we forget. Worry doesn't change anything, right? He goes, hey, let me invite you to see something you already know. You worrying about tomorrow didn't add one hour to your life. And I love in Luke, Jesus says, he has the audacity to say this. Hey, if you can't do a small thing, like add an hour to your life, is that a small thing? I, I, I feel like that's not a small thing, but Jesus considers it's a small thing. If you can't even do this small thing, like add an hour to your own life, how in the world can you anxious, anxiously change anything about the future? Right? So Jesus tells us something that we all know. Worry changes nothing. It doesn't add to anything. It doesn't add to our life. It doesn't uh, make the outcome different. How many of you like feel that, right? We all know that. We need to be reminded of that. And again, 
reorient our minds to the truth. So Jesus goes, hey, don't be anxious. Well, Jesus, I'm, I'm a storm inside. How do I not be anxious? Well, remember that life is more than these things. Okay, help me to remember that. Okay, I like you way more than anything in creation. Okay, help that one to be true for me. Hey, just remember, worrying doesn't change anything. It doesn't change anything. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I need that. All right, reason number four. Jesus goes on and he says, your father already knows everything you need. Everything you need. Matthew 6, 32. Your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. He actually knows what you need. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus taught us to pray, he said right before it, he goes, hey, you don't need to add thing after thing after thing after thing, heaping up all these requests. Your father in heaven already knows all of your needs before you open your mouth. He knows everything that you need better than you know. So trust him. Trust him that he can lead you and will guide you and keep you all along the way in the way that is best because he knows what you need more than you do. Now, I think we need to remember two things when we think about this. Number one, we have to situate that with what we heard a little bit earlier. God knows our true needs broader than just our physical needs, right? There will be times where God will lead us in a way and will go, you're not giving me what I need. And he goes, no, 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 I know what you actually need. I know what you actually need. I knit you together in your mother's womb. I ordered every day before one of them ever was because I know what you actually need, not just what you think you need. That's the second thing. Number one, he understands our true needs and that they're broader than just our physical. Second, remember that at times, God's understanding of our need and our perception of what we need are drastically different, right? My children often think that they need a second piece of candy two seconds after they had the first one, right? I know better than that. They don't need that. I need it. No, I don't. No, you don't. You don't need that, right? How many times are we like that? We perceive what we need and God goes, hey, no, 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 no. I know what you actually need. I know what you actually need. I know how your heart is wired. I know what will produce the most fruit in you. I know exactly the days that I have ordered for you and orchestrated for you. I know what you need before you even open your mouth. I know what you need. And reason number five, Jesus invites us to understand that tomorrow, let it worry about itself. You just need grace for what you're walking through today. You just need sufficient grace for what's here, right? Because another newsflash, not only does worry not change anything, you have no idea what tomorrow is, right? How in the world can you figure out through your limited perception exactly what's gonna happen tomorrow? 
And for you to just churn on it and churn on it and churn on it, for me to just churn on it and churn on it and churn on it, it's like we run down all these potential paths of things that may never happen. And we're building all these contingency plans for things that we have no idea about. And Jesus goes, let tomorrow be tomorrow. Let tomorrow have its own troubles. You have enough troubles right now. You have enough problems right in front of you right now. So guess what? Come to me and get the daily bread that you need in grace to walk for that one. And I'll worry about giving you the grace for tomorrow, tomorrow. I will give you what you need today. I will give you daily bread today. I will sustain you in that way. All right, look at the top of page four. So Jesus gives us these reasons to step against anxiety or these ways and things to believe. But he also gives us an exhortation of what we are to do, what we're to pursue, how we are to order our lives to see sustained victory over anxiety and a spirit of fear. Jesus exhorts his disciples to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. To seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness is logical in its order uh, and it's called not chronological. What I mean by that is this is not Jesus saying, hey, when you get up in the morning, do a little quiet time, seek my kingdom first, and then go about the rest of your day seeking yours. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying like chronologically do this. He's saying, let this pursuit govern your life. Let everything about your life come up under pursuing the kingdom of God and his righteousness expressed in your life and in the world. So in summary form, this exhortation serves to reiterate all of what Jesus has instructed us to this point in the sermon. To seek first his kingdom is to set our hearts to pursue the things that are valuable to him, to order our lives around his ways. What Jesus is saying here is just, hey, you want to know how to be free from anxiety over time? Follow the things I've been saying. Let them consume your first pursuits. Let them be the thing that you live up under. Let your life come up and be ordered up under all the things that I will teach and have taught you. Now, this is setting our hearts to do this. It's going to be really weak in your life, really immature. There's going to be lots of like what feels like starting and stopping and two steps forward and a step and a half backward. Like there will be all sorts of that. But Jesus is lovingly and patiently and gently inviting us to order our lives around his kingdom. Letter D, the kingdom of God. So he says, seek the kingdom of God. This speaks of the specific place where God's rule and God's reign, his dominion and his kingship are experienced. We're to submit everything in our lives to his lordship in wholehearted allegiance to him, right? So we come to him and we go, my time, my resources, my money, my relationships, my vocation, my future, my destiny, my ambitions, 
Everything about my life, I submitted up under your lordship. You are the king of all, and so I bring all of my life up under your rule. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. Nothing is off the table, is what that means. Right? You don't get to go, hey, you can have this portion of my money, but not this portion. You can have this part of my vocation, but not this part. You can have these relationships, but not this one. He says, all of it. Seek first with a singular eye. You cannot serve two masters. You can't sort of be in and sort of be out. That's what's producing the anxiety in our hearts anyway. He's saying, come and give it all to me. Put it all on the table and let me teach you and instruct you and guide you how to order those things. Seek that first with a singular focus and a singular eye. But he also invites us to seek his righteousness, which in the context of the sermon is speaking of the greater righteousness that's offered by Jesus in himself and in his teachings. To seek first his righteousness is to intentionally and consistently order our lives around his teachings by faith and in partnership with the grace that he has given us. How do we do this? I have three ways. And it's just a recap of where we've been in the sermon. Number one, we seek his righteousness by asking him and seeking to embody and cultivate the markers of his kingdom outlined in the Beatitudes. How do you seek God's righteousness? Blessed are the poor in spirit. I don't have what it takes. I have nothing on my own. Everything that I would bring is like filthy rags. I need God to come and be for me all that I cannot be in myself. I need him to do that both in my sin and in my immaturity and weakness and brokenness. Every part of who I am, I need God to be sufficient for me. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. How do we seek first the righteousness of God? We ask him to cultivate those things in us more and embody those things in us more. We do that, we seek his righteousness by seeking to actively resist the temptations that Jesus outlined in Matthew 5. Anger, lust, divorce, false oaths, retaliation, withholding love. Jesus said, these sins choke out the life of my kingdom. They choke it out and the righteousness of of God manifest in us. We actively resist them by repenting of them when we see them rejoicing in the free gift of grace that is made available to us in Christ, right? We don't have to beat ourselves up. We come and we repent and we receive and rejoice in the mercy of God made known in Christ Jesus. And we actively wage war against them in our lives. This is where Jesus says the things like, if that thing causes you to sin, cut it off. Get rid of it. Get rid of it actively wage war against it by the grace of God. 
So we seek to embody the Beatitudes. We resist these temptations to sin that all of us experience. And then we actively pursue the means of grace that he has just outlined for us. Each one of these puts us to receive God's grace by putting us more and more into a position of weakness, right? We empty out ourselves of our resources, of our strength, of our own ability to uh, enact our desires in the world. We empty ourselves out and we come before God and say, you alone have to do this. We do that consistently over time. Look at letter F. Jesus calls us to singularly order our lives around submission to him. He is to be our Lord and our master. Our treasure is to be in heaven, not on earth. In this context then, anxiety is not a natural part of life, but a warning sign of of a divided allegiance. It's like a light on a dashboard. This is a light on the dashboard for us, which can actually be a gift, right? A light on the dashboard is a gift. It's telling us something. It's telling us the reality of something. There's a presence of something in the engine going on. And Jesus has lovingly and graciously showed us how to come to him to receive his truth in those places. We are to repent of this and submit our lives again to Jesus and his kingdom. So Jesus then promises that for those who seek first his kingdom and righteousness, all these things will be added. In a context that he has spoken extensively of rewards given by the Father who sees all things, done in secret, we have to be confident that to orient our lives around the ways of Jesus in faith will ultimately result in experiencing true and lasting life. So in addition to all these things, those that seek first the kingdom will experience these in various ways in our lives, right? We've talked about this again and again and again, the rewards of of God as we pursue him. You'll experience his provision of, I will add all these things. Seek first the kingdom and I'll add all these things. First and foremost, I think the answer to that is internally. We'll experience more of God's grace in our soul more of his life, more of his light, more of his truth, more of what it means to be alive in Christ, in what we think and how we feel and what we long for and the passions and zeal of our soul will be oriented around him and he'll pour out his grace upon us. We experience that. Hey, do we want the added things of seeking first the kingdom? Yes. I think they'll come internally first. Secondly, there are external realities to this. He will provide for his children. He will make good on his promises. We experience that in this world again and again and again. He will make good on his word. However, the truth of the scripture is ultimately that we will experience the addition of all these things eternally in the age to come. Look at the broader context earlier when I said, what does it get a man if he gets the whole world, but he loses his soul? This is the context in which Jesus says that. Matthew 16, 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The son of man is going to come and in that day he will repay each person according to what he has done. So as we close, I just want to say this because I don't want us to have a misguided expectation here. There will be plenty of Christians who seek first the kingdom and do not see the fullness of God's promises made known in their life. Again, I mentioned it way back early in the sermon. This is the point of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 invites us to see that God is good and will ultimately fulfill every promise that he has made in Christ Jesus in eternity. And that even if we lay everything out before him and we die not seeing the fullness, we will, right? He won't leave one promise unfulfilled. He won't leave one thing in your life, one need met or or unmet. He will not forsake us. So here's, here's what the Bible invites us to see. It's this beautiful promise that you get throughout the Psalms. It's one of my favorite phrases in the scripture. Those that look to the Lord will never be put to shame. Do you know what that means? That means that you're not going to put all of your chips into this basket and, and, and end up being regretting of it. Like going, man, I missed it. If I would have hedged my bet over here, if I would have kept some to myself, that would have been better for me. Jesus promises you, if you go all in with me, I promise you, you will never be ashamed of that. You will never be ashamed of giving everything to submit your life to my lordship. I will follow through on every one of my promises forever. And you will not be ashamed. Now that truth has the power to stabilize us in the midst of all the places where we feel anxious and toilsome and worried and fretful and burdened, right? I get to live in the midst of my life and trust in the God who has proven his faithfulness again and again and again and again and again and again. And I get to say, even if I don't see it right now, I will not be ashamed. You will come through. Amen. And amen. Hey, would you stand? We're going to respond to the Lord. And how we're going to respond is we're going to rehearse and remember and partake of the sacrament of communion. And one of the beautiful things that we see in Hebrews 11 that demonstrates for us the difference between what the author of Hebrews was doing in that chapter and what we have. He says in that moment, these people just had to look forward in faith. Hey, we get to look back to the reality that God has fulfilled his promises in Christ Jesus. Though they aren't fully manifest and fully consummated. He has demonstrated fully and finally in the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, that which provides absolute anchor for your soul. 
you can look back and be sure. Is God going to provide? Look no further. He who did not spare his own son, if he gave him up freely for you, how much more will he not provide all that you need now that you're joined to him? So we're going to come and celebrate that. If you look to Jesus alone, if you believe that, if you put your faith in him and him alone, you're a Christian and we want to invite you to come and partake of this meal with us this morning. The way we take communion at Redeemer is you tear a piece of the bread off, dip it into the cup. We have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up front in the middle, in the balconies, and uh, we'll have a gluten-free station to my right, to your left. If you're in the room this morning and you don't put your faith in Jesus, we want to ask that you not come take this meal with us. This meal is a marker or a signifier and a seal of, a, of, of another reality. This, this meal doesn't do anything in it itself. It, it points to the reality of Christ's death and the grace that is available in him by believing in his death. That's, that's what this meal is for. So if you don't put your faith in the reality, uh, don't, don't feel the pressure to come and take the, the sign together. We'd invite you to stay in your seat. Be where you are. Maybe pray to the Lord uh, this morning. But I'm going to pray for us now. Servers, you can come forward. We'll, we'll respond to the Lord this way. And like we do every week, we have people in the sanctuary that would love to pray with you, pray for you. If there's specific places in your life that you are asking the Lord to move, if he's stirring something in your soul this morning, if you're wanting to experience more uh, of the grace of his truth in places where you feel anxious or toilsome, we'd love to stand and pray with you, pray for you that God would reveal himself uh, to you this morning. So we're going to respond in these ways. I'm going to pray for us and then come forward when you're ready. Father, we thank you for your word. Again, we thank you that your truth is powerful, that it is alive. Jesus, we submit our whole lives to you right now. God, I just ask that even uh, all over this room, as we prepare our hearts to come and receive this, this gift of grace that you have provided for us in Christ, I ask that you would give us the grace to say yes to you. God, would you take every part of us? God, would you let no part of us stay off the table or stay hidden? God, would you come and, and, and help us this morning to open our hands and open our hearts to, to be submitted to you in all things? God, I ask, I ask in, this, in this room for, for those who are even in the, in the midst of right now, like struggling through anxiety and fear and worry, God, would you reveal the truth of your word to us this morning? Would you wash our minds, wash our hearts? God, would you open the eyes of our hearts to see what is true, to understand your truth, to be uh, rooted and grounded in the reality of your affection and in your provision and in your care, God? Would you stabilize us, secure us, we ask. Come and feed us this morning, nourish our hearts by faith, 
as we come and receive. Would you minister to us? Set us free? Stabilize us? Secure us in your hand? We ask in Jesus' name.